Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. I hit record before we even said hello. I know. <clears throat> that was probably pretty smart. Yeah, because we do our best stuff early. <laughs> Hi. Hello. How are you? Pretty good. Where's Bliss? Um, Bliss is in Oakland, staying at her sister's house. Uh, yeah, and it's cozy and rainy. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying being yeah, here. Californians are going to have like a cool or cold or even snowy Christmas this year if you live in higher altitudes around because it's going to be, there's storms all week, I think. We need it. California needs rain so much, so it's good. Yeah, although this podcast won't come out till, till mid-January, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we should wish everybody, uh, uh, hopefully they, by, by this time, they all had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yes, and, yeah. and we hope that 2022 has started off on a good foot. Yes, we need more dopamine and oxytocin release. <laughs> yeah, we've had a depletion. Not only have we had a rain shortage in California, but we've had a dopamine and oxytocin shortage as well. I don't think that's just in California. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't either. Oh my god! Oh my god! How are you? Um, I'm terrific. I have to tell you that I had my last birth, which we'll talk about in a minute. For 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 a little bit, I think I have about seven or eight weeks before I have another scheduled birth, which happens sometimes in my schedule. And it happens at a really good time this year because it allows me to do some short getaways and things like that. But when I can turn my phone off and I've turned my phone off at night or just on vibrate anyway, um, I'm sleeping better. Yeah. I feel less stress. Yeah. And I've been out hiking and I've been um, even napping some. So it's just everything seems a bit more peaceful. When and this maybe as a taste for what I've been really looking for and what will happen for me next spring and summer. Yeah. When I take some time off, I think it's really good for my health to sleep better. I think yes. more sleep yeah. part of that, part of all the things we should be doing to improve our health, to fight not just this virus, but all viruses and all illnesses and all chronic illnesses and cancer and autoimmune diseases and stuff if you lose weight and you eat healthier and you get outside and you're active and you sleep better and you have more happy thoughts i think we'd all be better off are you a doctor recommending preventative health care what yeah there's about four of us i think in the country no i know there's a lot there's a lot of doctors who do that what? you know you know the the major uh industrial medicine complex doctors don't do that yeah they don't yeah. i mean or if they do they do it briefly on their own time because they really don't have the system doesn't really allow them to do that yeah but we'll get to that we don't have to go into that right now i i also want to talk a little bit um i've got a, a bunch of topics there but our main topic today is going to be we're going to uh we talk about vbac right vbac and hbac yes and hbac right yeah vbac and yeah. hbac but yeah. You know, we've talked about it intermittently on many different podcasts, but we had some requests from people to specifically do one. So we'll get to that later in the podcast today so that people can look this up later and get our opinions on, on HBAC and VBAC. Um, and uh, before we do that, though, I've got some things I got to go through. So um, can, I, can I tell you a couple of things that I wanted to tell you to check in? You still ask permission. I know, because you were moving on. You were okay. moving on. Yeah. Well, since when do you have problems interrupting me? Go right ahead. You should always <laughs> interrupt me. <laughs> take a poll. I'm going to take a poll on that one, Mr. Fishbein. Please, please tell us you what's know, on your mind. You know you're in trouble when I say Mr. Fishbein. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, so, you've, never, you've never said that, actually. So you're really in trouble. Anyway, um, I... Yeah, I drove up here from Los Angeles to Oakland, and um, I'm going to spend the holidays with my boys here at my sister's place. And then yesterday, no, the day before yesterday, 
um, I drove to San Rafael, which is where I really feel like if I'm going to be in the Bay Area, that's probably where I'm going to end up. Um, and I went through Fairfax. Do you know these areas, Stu? I don't know Fairfax, no. It's so cute. It's so cute. It's in Marin County. Um, and then I decided to go up and around to Sonoma and Napa just to kind of like see what other areas I might be serving, you know, so I kind of went that way back to Oakland. It was a beautiful drive. And um, yesterday I was thinking about going to Nevada City, which is where um, Colleen and Matthew, our clients that um, had that beautiful birth in Topanga, breached birth in Topanga that we talked about, they moved to Nevada City. Um, so I was thinking about visiting them, but it was a two and a half hour drive and it was supposed to be really rainy yesterday. And so I opted for cozy instead. And Nevada, Nevada cities in California. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Were they, confused? Were they confused to the people that named the city? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't found out the history yet, but I've gotten, I've gotten from several different people that Nevada city is a really beautiful place. Um, similar to Topanga in feel and vibe and, um, so I don't think it's going to be my, where I'm going to set up a practice, but, um, it sounds like a good place to, to go and visit our good friends. Um, is it, and is I, it in the, is it in the, in the woods, in the foothills? Is it where, is it, yeah. or is it, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that area, um, that area is just great. You know, yeah. my student, Alyssa just bought a house up in Mariposa. Who did? My student. Oh, yeah. The one that's finishing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, she's got 10 acres up there and, you know, Beautiful. she's going to be, she's going to have her uh, no trespassing sign and her shotgun <laughs> and, oh goodness, you know, all that stuff. Uh, survivalist yeah. mentality. Yeah. When, when the shit all hits the fan. <laughs> if and when, yes, I get it. I don't think but it's I've, you know, I, I, you know, I listen to um, books on tape while I'm driving, right? And so I've been listening to Matthew McConaughey's Greenlight. Have you heard this one yet? No, but I think calling it books on tape is a little bit old fashioned, don't you think? <laughs> you mean audible? You mean audible? Yeah. Audio books. There you go. Thanks, you go. Stu, okay. for helping a girl out. <laughs> nobody, um, has, nobody has, you don't even have a tape player in your car anymore. So I don't. You're I, right. your cars don't even have CD players anymore. Nope. That's right. true. Yeah. Very true. Um, he, uh, lived on the road in his airstream all around the country after he got famous. So he did a very similar thing to what I did and talked about his experiences on the road and what it was like to be in all these RV parks and all the people he met. And um, I don't, I just thought that was very interesting. So I thought I would share with you guys that it's a great book. It's very entertaining. His family is absolutely insane. Um, but his adventures are, um, are definitely interesting enough to, uh, to read or listen to the book. So. Yeah. People That's often it. want to know what you're doing or what you're reading. And I get, I get a lot of birth books sent to me and I've been sort of looking at a couple of them. I've got one here in front of me, why choose home birth by, uh, Monica stone, which, which I, I'm sort of reading, but, um, sort also of. I'm still reading outlander book seven. I'm stuck on that. I mean, I'm, I'm almost done with book seven. And then I did buy Robert F. Kennedy's Jr.'s book. Um, the Real I've Anthony. been trying to buy it. Where'd you get it? I got it on Amazon. Yeah. And what's it called? The Real Anthony Fauci. Yeah. Yep. I've read the first chapter. If you just read the first chapter and you, and you thought that Anthony Fauci was this saint-like figure, you have to reconsider. And this book is really referenced well. It's over, I think there's over 1,200 or 2,200 references in the book. So you can do your own research. Obviously, nobody's going to do that or very few people will. Maybe some independent journalists might, but uh, you know, mainstream media won't cover it and that sort of thing. But I mean, he just recently just said that uh, we'll probably be wearing masks forever on airplanes and, and people should uh, check the vaccine status of their guests for Christmas. Um, he's a nut. He's 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 off the deep end. He's protecting his own tush, and uh, that's all I'll say about that. So, but you, it, should, but you should take a picture and hold it up on your Instagram account, Stu. That's what a lot of people who are reading it just for exposure, so people can see. Oh, all right. Let me make a note of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I did a couple, um, I did a couple of podcast interviews, one with Nathan Riley, which I think I mentioned, but the other one was with the woman, um, from the UK that you did from the ultimate birth partner. So I did an interview with her on Monday. Well, that's, so that um, Sally, Bear Sally Ann Beresford. I think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is, uh, Nathan just interviewed me as well. So he's right. on, a, he's on a roll, but right. Mine isn't out yet. I don't think yours is out yet either. No, they're no. not out yet. But 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 by the time this airs, they will be. So yeah, he's got a lot of them in the can. So do actually right now. So do we. Um, we have a lot of podcasts in the can, which is why we're why this one won't come out for probably a month. Good. All right. So um, we've talked before about doing ultrasounds. I did a podcast years ago called uh, "How Many Ultrasounds Does It Take to Make a Baby." Mm -hmm. And uh, we, I, talk, I think that was with my friend Brian, but I can't remember. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say that I did a 20-week ultrasound uh, last week. And most of the time when I do 20-week ultrasounds, everything's normal. And it's great for me because I'm seeing clients that aren't mine. And sometimes it's the first time I'm meeting them. And it's always hard when you meet somebody for the first time to find something wrong. Um, so most of the time, it's great. But if anybody wonders why 20-week ultrasounds have some value, especially in the home birth world, is because we want to find things. If you find things that aren't compatible with life or aren't compatible with the home birth, you want to know that way ahead of time. You don't want to find that out when they're laboring and the baby has hydrocephalus or something and the head won't fit out or some, something weird. So for again, me- it Again, it depends on your perspective and I can tell you a story afterwards, but keep going. No, well, yeah, sometimes doing it leads to, it depends who's doing it. Of course, we've talked about that. They'll always find some ditzel that brings you back and makes you fear, fill with fear. But I just want to say that I, I did an ultrasound on a client that I hadn't met before. And I found a baby with, with really bad anomalies. Yeah. And so being that I know that I want to treat people like I want to be treated. Yes. In the morning, I got her in to see Dr. my friend, Dr. Bradley, that afternoon. And I actually was up seeing the horses in that part of town in the afternoon. This was on a Monday. So I have the afternoon off. So I go up and see my horses and Dr. Bradley's office is nearby there. So I went by and, and the woman was there without her partner who had to go back to work. And so she was there. So I went, which was great for support, but I learned a lot from Dr. Bradley. And then we, we actually sent her to a real specialist, uh, super specialist on skeletal dysplasias and other things at UCLA, an old colleague of mine, Debbie Krakow, who happens to be a chairman at UCLA, and she was my resident when I was the chief resident. So it's funny to see people come full circle and, and succeed like that. Yeah. And anyway, so it turned out that there was something terribly wrong with this baby, and it's probably lethal. And I don't know what they're going to do. She's not my client anymore. She belongs to a midwife, and I haven't spoken to them since, since that day at Dr. Bradley's office. But it just... Wanted to point out the value sometimes of doing a 20-week scan, especially with somebody like I'm tooting my own horn, but somebody who's sensitive enough to not tell them, gee, I think there's something wrong with your baby. Here's a referral to see a specialist two weeks from now. Yeah. 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 Because you know from, from all of the times that you've worked with midwives and, the, and being so intimate with your clients, the difference that it makes when um, you don't have to wait to feel some resolution and how torturous it is to have to wait for those things. So yes, thank you for being that kind of provider. Yeah, we, need, we just need people to understand and treat people like they want to be treated. It's, it's the basic golden rule. Of life, yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to give like a, like a counter perspective because I think it's really important. I also, um, you know, appreciate when someone has a 20 week ultrasound, but I didn't get any, preg any, um, ultrasounds in my last two pregnancies intentionally because I wanted to go through my pregnancy trusting that whatever I was given was what I was meant to be given. And some people do have that perspective. I had a woman, a couple of years ago who her first home birth was um, no ultrasounds. And she ended up having, the baby ended up having only one kidney. No, was born with no kidneys. So it um, obviously did not survive. survive. And she 
told me that she, she wanted a very low intervention pregnancy the second time, which sometimes when people lose children that way, they want more, but this was really, that was their, how they wanted things managed. And she told me the story of how grateful she was that she didn't know this ahead of time because she got to have a home birth and hold her baby and have the completion of that pregnancy in a way that really matched her desires. And so, um, you know, I think that there also is that perspective as well for some people, not everybody, but in giving informed consent, um, you know, some people don't want any of that complication. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it, yeah, and it, it, I agree with you 100%. And, um, and also, as I said briefly earlier, um, a lot of people who get 20 week scans will go to somebody who will almost always find something to, as a reason to bring them back uh, yeah. for another scan. And I think it's mostly monetary or, or insecurity on the part of the, the scanner. CYA. Uh, well, it's CYA plus dollar sign. <laughs> yes. Equals. Right. Equals. Serial uh, uh, scans, right. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, briefly, uh, had a nice talk with uh, people that are starting up a, a, a support system called Be Her Village. And we'll talk more about this in a future podcast. But when they were talking to me, this is one of my, one of my pet peeves, is they kept using the word provider. And one of the words I like, you know, language matters. We've talked about the use, misuse of language to skew people down a path you want them to do. But one of the things I really like to get rid of, and I'd like to start, officially start it today, but I've started it before, but officially started today, is to not use the word provider. You know, a provider is a person that provides stuff. So it could be a mechanic who fixes your car. It could be the cleaners who clean your you know, clean your, your, te- your, your shirts and dresses. They're a provider of cleaning. So I would prefer the word practitioner mm-hmm. if we're going to use it. The reason that providers became ubiquitous in the language is because it was the insurance companies did that in the 80s. They began to change the book of doctors and physicians to a book of providers. And they did it purposely to get rid of the, the doctor-patient relationship. That because they wanted to separate, they wanted to insert themselves between the doctor and the patient. So by calling doctors providers or midwives providers or nurse practitioners providers or anybody else providers, it's it's a generic, it's, it takes away the depth and meaning of what that relationship is. So it flows off the tongue now of everybody real easily because it's become part of the, the language, but I think we need to get rid of it. What do you think? Um, I don't have a strong opinion the way that you do, but I'm I'm happy to support you. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. So, <laughs> no more providers. Okay. So, a couple of letters. Well, first of all, one letter. Um, this is from Liz. I have a letter too. Okay, I'll do one, and then you do one. Okay. This is from Liz in in Kansas, and she gets, sent me a five page letter about her OB history. I'm not going to go through all that. I'm just going to read the end of her letter. And she says, I am currently a special education teacher, but with everything going on with Corona and that drama, I'm not sure how long I will be able to or want to stay in my profession. I love my job, but the people that make the rules have no clue what it's like in the trenches. Now, how often do I say that? Mm-hmm. I have been interested in birth work since I read Ina May's book. And then when I caught my sister's baby at her home birth, I've had a serious calling. I would love to be a midwife, but I'm not sure how to get started at this juncture or the type of training I will need. I do not want to be a medwife. I really appreciate the podcast about becoming a midwife, and I will keep you posted. Yes, listen, I did a podcast on that, so you can look back and find that. Bliss, thank you so much for sharing Sky's story. I love that you are real and open. It is very relatable. My stepson in my previous relationship was a victim of a quadruple homicide, and I know it's very difficult very different than a biological child, but the grief cycles and helping my kids through it have been a roller coaster. I applaud you for taking some time to get away and take care of yourself. That's so important for all of us. Stu, Mr. Stu, <laughs> Mr. Fishbine. <laughs> Mr. Fishbine. Thank you for your common sense. Last September, after finally being able to come back to school, I became a 99 percenter. Surviving Corona along with my husband and six of eight of our 
of our children. We both feel like we have antibodies and the immunities we need and are against getting vaccinated. I get most of my information regarding it from you because I trust that you are a reliable source, not bought and paid for by rich billionaires. Well, I can assure all the listeners that I'm not bought and paid for by rich billionaires. <laughs> nope. <laughs> As I come to you from my little home studio in my little office in my little apartment in Studio City. All right. This should never have been a political issue and they made it that way. Thank you, Dr. Stu and Bliss for sharing all your knowledge and expertise. I love the podcast and you are empowering women and families. You are doing so much good. You are truly helping women heal from severe trauma. I've waited to be caught up with the podcasts because there's so much to talk about. Thank you so much for all you do. Merry Christmas. Right. Merry Christmas, Liz. Merry okay. Christmas. You have one? Um, yeah, but it's quite long. You know what? Let's save this really long letter for the next podcast. Good. Okay. I would good with that. Yeah, I want to talk about VFACs. Let's All right. Do it. Yeah, just because, just for time's sake, because I, I don't, we, I've got a few more things, and I, and I totally want to spend some time on VFAC. So you know what time it is, Bliss? It's time to talk about boobies. Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us, <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right, and we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do so we love them for that yeah i wish we had like a beer sponsor <laughs> i don't drink beer but you do <laughs> no, i know no because i, I mean bamboobies is great stuff but uh, it's not products for dr stew put it that way it's products yeah. for products for our listeners but that's products for the bump breastfeeding and beyond they like to say so yeah it's, you know, they, they they focus really on comfort for moms and uh, both physically and emotionally and they have great products. I mean, we've, we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second. But we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is 100% organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it too it's actually really good for you yeah Even if guy, i do <laughs> and, uh, there's no lanolin or and it's made in the usa so tell us a little bit about the the nursing stuff well they have um the nursing pads that i've talked to you about that i really love they're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you, it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that <laughs> you can see them through your clothes and it's, it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart shape design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo, um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can um breastfeed wherever you're at so check them out they're great they're great for the environment they're great for mamas and um tell them about the discount codes too yeah they go if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts that's i-n-s-t-i-n-c-t-s you get uh 25 off your purchase and so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, <laughs> then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboo Bees. Thanks, Bamboo Bees. So just a couple of things on just briefly, because I know we've been doing too much COVID stuff lately. So just two things on COVID. Uh, I got this thing in the mail from uh, place, a, a, a site that uh, I follow sometimes. They said that Moderna, who's making one of the mRNA vaccines, is pulling out of a major biotech industry conference in January because it's afraid of COVID. I just, I, I just thought that was, I was just thought that was so funny. It's supposed to be in San Francisco in January, I think, and yeah. uh, they're not going to, they're not going to go because, because of COVID. All right. So I just thought that was funny. And what's not funny, however, is the effect that this 
Omicron variant, which again, this is December, is being used as fear porn. Fear and now, porn. And now my beloved National Hockey League has decided to shut down for a week before Christmas and cancel a bunch of games uh, because of this virus, which is now more infectious, but not making people more sick. Um, and these are the healthiest, some of the healthiest men in, the, uh, in, in North America, and they're shutting it down. Uh, you know, there's a word I'd like to use, but I won't use it on the podcast. It begins with a P. And okay. uh, yeah, but you know what I'm talking about? I don't understand the, the executives of these major sports organizations that do that. But, you know, it just, it just, I can't get too pissed because I can't not watch hockey. So I can't be angry at them, but I'm angry at them. Does that make any sense? Yes. All right. I am, all right. So I, um, I like to say as a, as a small, uh, Corona update is that one of my friends um, tested positive and went in for the monoclonal antibodies, um, which I've heard can really help people feel fat, um, better faster within like a couple of days, there's an improvement. So I don't know a lot about it, but um, I just wanted to kind of speak to that there is um, this therapy and that you usually have to ask for it and advocate for it because it's not something that's automatically offered. Yeah. So I don't know else that you know about it quickly that you'd want to say, but. Yeah, apparently I've heard a couple of things. First of all, there's a really increasing demand because um, people like, I think Joe Rogan and other people have made it common knowledge that, that that's something that they use. I don't know if he did, but there's famous people that have gotten monoclonal antibodies and, and done well with them. So um, I got an email from UCLA this morning, actually, that said that in order to get monoclonal antibodies at UCLA, they've got a five or six day delay now because they've got such high demand. I've also heard recently that monoclonal antibodies may not work as well against Omicron, which, is, which may or may not be a bad thing, only because we want people to have natural immunity, so that's good. And Omicron isn't as severe as Alpha or Delta was as far as causing illnesses, despite the, like I said, the fear porn that you're getting from the mainstream media. So um, yeah, but it's one of those options, but so is still hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and vitamin D and zinc and quercetin and all the things that are in the FLCCC protocol. So um, yeah, anyway, that's that. That's enough. Okay, quickly um, in the Green Journal, they, uh, the December issue of the Green Journal, which is ACOG's journal, they have a uh, connect the dots segment, every, I think every, every publication. And they have four articles in that, four brief articles. And all four of them are um, of one mind. I guess that's why it's called connect the dots. And they're all about how great the vaccine is and how you should get the vaccine and how it doesn't cause problems in pregnant women and that sort of thing. So it's not, they, they can't even have one like dissenting article. They can't even have one article of the study from Norway or, you know, the study, the, remember, I, I think last week's podcast, I, I reiterated, or maybe I talked about it on my, one of those solo podcasts, but that'll be coming out, but not even one, everything, everything's in lockstep, you know, and when science is in lockstep, yeah, you should probably be a little bit skeptical of it because that's not yeah. the way science really works. Yeah. Okay, um, here's a letter from a former twin client. She said, Stu, she calls me Stu. So I'm, I've made it past Dr. Fishbite or Dr. Stu, and I'm just Stu. <laughs> I made a new mom friend at boys basketball practice last week, and the cherry on top of our first conversation was when she mentioned that she's really into birth and listens to a lot of podcasts, to which I said, do you listen to Dr. Stu's podcast? She got out of her seat and said, stop it <laughs> with a big smile. And I said, and I said, he was part of the delivering team for the twins. Her arms went up in overwhelming and, and said, oh, and Bliss was my doula. Oh, awesome. Yeah. What a small world. Her head blew up. Laugh out loud. <laughs> you touched so many lives around the country and world. She said your podcasts were pivotal in her choosing to birth her latest babe at home. In case you haven't heard it lately, which we have though, but thanks, Kristen. This is from Kristen. Thanks for being you and for all you do. So that was nice. Love right. it. 
Yeah, we're getting we're getting out there. We make it to uh, rec basketball games now. <laughs> Dr. Seuss podcast. By the way, if any rec league wants to sponsor Dr. Seuss podcast, you can reach out. Just reach out to us. Okay. Okay. So let's get to uh, the the topic. Here's a letter from Rachel. She said, "Hi there. I stumbled upon your account and have learned so much. Was wondering if you had any podcasts or posts regarding V-backs with an inverted T scar on the uterus." I had a home birth cesarean in July, and I was told I couldn't have a natural birth due to the tear on the uterus when baby was born. I am searching for any info evidence I can find that, so that I can fully prepare for my next birth and hope to have a natural one. No worries if you don't reply to direct messages. Just thought I'd check. Thank you so much, Rachel. And that's from Rachel. So let's talk about VBAC and HBAC. Okay. I've got, I wrote down some questions that we, when we did our um, live, there were a bunch of VBAC questions. And so I had said, let's just wait and do a whole episode on that. So we'll just start talking and then I'll ask some of these questions as we go along. Um, what do you want to say to Rachel about her question? Um, well, uh, uh, I would tell you that a T and scar incision is not a contraindication, generally speaking. Sort of depends how far up the fundus they went. But I know from experience of all the years doing C-sections, that when you tee an incision, you generally don't go into the, the, the fundus, you just go up into the, it's like a low vertical C-section. And even ACOG says that low vertical scars are not a contraindication to doing a VBAC. So one of the things that Bliss and I talk about often is that if a doctor wants to discourage you from a VBAC, he'll find a way to, he or she will find a way to do it. Yeah. So, a T incision is generally not a contraindication. A jade incision is generally not a contraindication to a trial of labor. Okay, so it doesn't increase the risk for uterine rupture is what you're saying. No, and if it does, it's statistically a very small number. So that it really should still be ultimately the decision. Again, people who have a low transverse C-section, if you look at the literature, and these are the numbers that I've often used, have about a one in 200 risk of the scar separating. We don't use the word rupture generally in, in our practice because rupture conjures up the image of a tire sort of exploding on the freeway. That's generally not what happens, the scar separates. On rare occasions, it can rupture. And in those cases, you can have a very bad outcome. And that's about five to 16% of the scar dehiscences that will end up in that. So if a scar dehiscence is about one in 200, and let's just say 16% of that one in 200 are gonna have a bad outcome. 16% is about one in, one in six. Um, so the actual risk of a really bad outcome with a VBAC is about one in six times one in 200 or about one in 1200. And that's sort of how statistics work. So when you give that information, you tell somebody the risk of rupture is one in 200 and you don't say anything else, that's going to be, still that's only, that's only half of 1%. It's still a small number, but we're talking about one in a thousand or less. That's a tenth of one percent, and right. that is very small number. And so people need to have these numbers to make decisions. Now, for some people, that may be too much risk, and they may choose to have a repeat C-section. For other people, they may say just the opposite. Right. Great. Um, so, the difference between the term VBAC and HVAC. VBAC is vaginal birth after cesarean. And HVAC is a home birth, home birth after cesarean. Um, so those, those are the different terms. So someone was asking, can we talk about the difference for success or safety between VBAC and HVAC? Yeah, let me just define that VBAC and HVAC are terms you give to somebody who's had a successful VBAC or an HVAC. Right. Prior to that, we call it a TOLAC. Right. Which is T-O-L-A-C, which is a trial of labor after cesarean section. Now we, you and I don't like the word trial because it means that, you know, trying doesn't mean succeeding, but it's, that's the term that's used. So yeah. um, ACOG, of course, never recommends anything at home. So they think that a HBAC is absolutely contraindicated, but putting them aside because they they have their bias and their confirmation bias and all that stuff. Um, People are concerned that if they, if they do have one of these rare occurrences, that they're going to have a terrible outcome at home and they won't have a terrible outcome in the hospital because there's an operating room down the hall in the hospital. 
what I've always said before is that if you have a baby that's heart rate pattern is normal, either at home, it's listening in the heart rate or at, on the monitor at the hospital, and suddenly the uterus ruptures and the baby's heart rate drops, bottoms out down to 60 or 70 beats a minute. You have about 14 minutes, according to my experts that I've always listened to for years and years and years, before that baby will suffer some permanent brain anoxic injury, which means lack of oxygen to its brain. Right. In the hospital, can a baby be getting, can you get a baby out in 14 minutes? And that's assuming, by the way, that the tracing was perfectly normal beforehand. Sometimes when you see a scar that's beginning to rupture, you might be, begin to see deep variable decelerations and a rising baseline. And then you have less time. But let's just say you have 14 minutes. Let's say you have 18 minutes, somewhere in between. Can a hospital get a baby out in 14 or 18 minutes? Some possibly can. And they have to have like in-house anesthesia, who's not busy at the time. They have to have in-house residents because the OB generally isn't going to be in the hospital, or if they have a mandate that the OB is in the hospital for all VBACs, they might not have an assistant surgeon standing by. The OR crew might not be available at that moment. So that sort of thing. So the idea of getting a person from a labor room into a delivery room, getting them anesthetized adequately, having an anesthesiologist available, having a surgeon and an assistant surgeon and a scrub nurse and a circulating nurse all available, getting her prepped and on the table in a fully catheter place and all that stuff in 14 minutes is not that likely at most hospitals. So if you have that rare thing that happens, you're likely to have a bad outcome, whether you're at home or in the hospital. That's just my, my feeling about that. So I don't know that the risks are greater. They might be slightly greater if you have that rare hospital that can do that. But I do know that success rates are significantly different. Yeah. And I did some research for this yesterday, Bliss. I looked some stuff up and, and the VBAC rate na nationwide, not the VBAC success rate, but the VBAC rate is about 13%, which means that 87% of women are, are, are either convinced or choose to have a repeat cesarean section. Right. 13% is a pathetic, <laughs> it's a pathetic number. Yes. Right? The success rate of those who try to have a VBAC, if you look at numbers across the country, vary depending on which institution you're looking at from the teens all the way up to the high 60% success rate. Are you talking about in a hospital? In a, in a hospital setting. Yeah. In the home setting, I can only speak for the local midwives, the people that I know here, but the success rate's over 90%. Yes, yes. So all things being equal, which they're not, all right, then you have a better chance of success not being in the hospital. And the question is, why is that? And it's a very simple answer, which you and I both know, is because of the way you're treated in the two different locations, the model by which you're cared for. At home, you can eat, you can move around, you can change position, you can uh, get in the shower, you can get in the tub, you can do the things that help labor move along. In the hospital, you're treated as if you're an explosion about to happen. So you have to be continuously monitored. You're really not allowed to eat because you might need surgery. You probably, your doctor probably wants you to have an epidural. So you can't move and you can't, you know, all these things and you're being interrupted and you're in a place where you're anxious and nervous. And so labor tends to not be, it tends to be dysfunctional. You end up on Pitocin with an intrauterine pressure catheter and all that stuff. And so your success rates are going to naturally be less. Yeah. And, and fear. So <clears throat> purely the, the success rate depends purely on, on which hospital or, or not leaving your home on where you go, your statistic can improve, but also the provider confidence and lack of fear in your trial of labor is going to greatly increase your ability to be successful. So I want to I want to underline that for home or hospital. You need to have a provider who you really feel believes in you, who is not afraid of VBAC, um, and that's the person that if you have the option, I know that across the country, it becomes difficult to find multiple providers that you can interview that will even give you a chance, um, to have this 
trial of labor. But that is a very important part. And I I have this um, VBAC story from a, a mom who it was before I got licensed. Um, but, you know, I've always had a, a very soft place in my heart for, for women who are attempting to have a VBAC because of um, my birth story with my daughter, even though I didn't have a cesarean, I really did have this experience of reclaiming my body and what a transformative experience that was that somebody encouraged me and gave me the option to do that. Um, and so I had this woman who was attempting a, a VBAC in the hospital. And I remember her provider, young female doctor who actually was really amazing, but she walked in and she was, you know, we were working with the um, nurse who was a midwife back in England and the doctor came in and she was staring at the monitors and she had her arms crossed and she, she looked at us and she goes, you know what, I'm just going to go someplace and not pay attention to what's happening because I really can tell that I'm not helpful right now in, I'm just going to be nervous. And she knew, she knew that her being nervous about something that was happening when everything looked normal was not going to be helpful. And she removed herself from the situation. Um, and we did end up having a, uh, vaginal delivery on a birth stool that I brought into the hospital and showed the doctor how to use it. So this was a doctor who was open and willing. And that's the kind of provider that you need, whether you're in the hospital or at home. But I would agree with Stu. There's no reason why, if you've had a previous cesarean, why home birth is still not a better option for you in terms of having a vaginal delivery, which is the same if you hadn't had a C-section before. It just increases your chances of vaginal delivery. Yeah, VBAC is not a procedure. VBAC is just a normal vaginal delivery. It's often lumped in with VBAC reach twins. They always, blah, blah. it's like word salad, but <laughs> it's not. It's completely separate. And it's just a normal vaginal delivery. And so if you treat somebody like having a normal vaginal delivery, the problem is they treat first time moms who are having a normal vaginal delivery in the hospital and they're nervous about that too, because the right. hospital has just got that nervous, nervous energy. But yeah. the evidence is, is clear that VBAC is a reasonable choice. It's what's called level A evidence in ACOG. And as you said, Bliss, it's transformational for so many women. I've been to ICANN meetings where women are going around, we sit in a circle sometimes and people tell their story and the box of Kleenex comes out because people break down and start crying. And if you've ever, anyone's ever watched the Breach documentary, um, heads up, they see Liz, the woman who talks about the baby's already coming out and they push the baby back up inside and put, give her general anesthesia. And she sadly says, you know, I, 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 I have no memory of his birth because I was out and the baby would have fallen out. And she had a VBAC. I met her four years later after she already had a VBAC and she was still upset about her first birth. I met her at the premiere of the, of the documentary. And I talked about in a recent podcast about the woman who had two previous cesarean sections. We just did a home VBAC with her. I think you might remember the story. And just the look on her face and her husband when they finally held their baby is, is worth everything that you and I have put into our professional lives. It just yeah. is to, to, see yeah. that, to see that beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Gives me goosebumps. I would, like to, I would like to comment a little bit about um, the idea of VBAC bands. Uh, many people live in areas where they're not uh, allowed God, um, to have a VBAC. And they say that, uh, well, our hospital doesn't have a policy against VBAC, but no doctor will do one. That's called a de facto ban. I would tell you right off the bat that that's completely unethical. Um, and you, they should be called out on that. And you don't have to succumb to what they say. Because uh, a VBAC is just a vaginal delivery. It's not like a breach where you'd force someone who doesn't know how to do a breach delivery to do a breach delivery by refusing to have a C-section. Here, you can go in labor, but you don't, do you really want to go to a place that's hostile toward you? So VBAC bans are unethical, whether they're either de facto bans or legitimate bans. And if your doctor says to you that after you've had one low transfer C-section that, that you should have a repeat C-section, they don't do VBACs at my hospital, you should immediately when you get pregnant the second time, you find another practitioner and you seek somebody out. Yeah. Because the VBAC success rate is really high. And if VBACs are banned and the success rate is 60%, 70% in that hospital, that means you're, you're forcing 60 to 70% of women to have a surgery they don't want. 
or need, or it can cause multiple complications from multiple surgeries. Yeah. And if they want a third kid or a fourth kid, then you're increasing their risk by doing that second C-section. So uh, every, every, again, I just want to emphasize to people who are told by their physician or by their local hospital that we don't allow VBAC, <coughs> Santa Barbara, um, that, uh, that that's unethical. And you have every right to call them out on it. As a matter of fact, women in the community should stand up against it. And if we have to use their tactics against them and we have to embarrass them, you know, I'm not for calling out the, um, uh, you know, for dehumanizing anybody or anything like that, or calling them names, but but calling them out on their policies and, and essentially asking them to explain their policy. Oh, well, we don't have 24-hour anesthesia. Well, if you don't have 24-hour anesthesia and most emergency C-sections have nothing to do with VBAC, how do you handle those? Right. Most emergency C-sections have to do with fetal distress or, or placental abruption or something that has nothing to do with VBAC. And yet you still have, so if you don't have ability to do those, then maybe you should just close your labor unit, which of course some hospitals are doing, which of course doesn't serve the community at large either. So I think because labor and delivery units are often not money makers for hospitals, I think they prefer to close them than allow women the choices that they deserve. Uh, but VBAC is something that is normal. It's a normal vaginal delivery and the success rate for women who um, even if you didn't labor the first time, you had a C-section for breach electively scheduled, uh, your chance of success is really high in the home setting. It's over 90%. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, we, we joked around about this when we did our live. Um, what considers you a good candidate for VBAC? And you said. You're pregnant. Right. Yeah. Okay. But but let's turn that around. When would it not be a good idea to uh, to do a trial of labor? Who's not a good candidate? And maybe inside of that question, as you're answering that, Stu, you can talk about intervals because people ask a lot of questions about pregnancy intervals in terms of not being a good candidate. I know you already kind of talked about the type of scar, but. Yeah, well, uh, somebody with a previous classical C-section. Now, what is a classical C-section? It's a scar cut through the fundus of the uterus. Why would that ever happen? Well, it would either happen because you had a baby that was extremely premature um, or you had a anterior placenta previa or something where they cut, try to cut above the placenta. Otherwise, it's very rare to see a classical cesarean section. Mm -hmm. That would probably be a contraindication. Another contraindication would be a through and through myomectomy. So if you had not just fibroid surgery, but a, a myoma that where you entered the endometrial cavity to take the fibroid out. That one might be a reason, especially if the fibroid was in the fundal part of the uterus. That that will see in my own experience in, in life, I saw that happen once. I saw a ruptured uterus once on a woman that was helivacked into the hospital I was working at at the time. And I was the doctor, um, you know, ER call doctor. So I ended up taking care of it. And the baby did not survive. The mother survived, but the baby did not survive. Um, those are the two only real contraindications to probably having a VBAC other than any obstetrical reason not to have a vaginal delivery like center previa or a funic presentation or transverse lie or other things. But, but if the baby's in a normal lie, whether it's breech or twins or head down, VBAC is perfectly reasonable. In um, Krita, those also, if you had a previous cesarean, your statistics go up for that. So obviously that would be a Yeah, but you're gonna have that hopefully ruled out before you, get to the point where you're going to choose to have a, a labor. Yeah. But, but that would be a reason we, we have a, I have a dear friend who had was looking to have another delivery at home and her third pregnancy ended up being a percreta, right? Percreta. Yeah, didn't, I, didn't I find that? You suspected it. And then I think Dr. Shavira is the one who confirmed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm never, I always send people when I find something wrong, I send people to get, but I'm um, like, that's my job is to screen people for that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And then intervals? Oh, yeah, intervals, okay. So the data on intervals says that the risk goes up if the twin to twin interval, which means, not the twin to twin, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the interval between pregnancy, between the, the, the delivery of one baby and the conception of another is less than six months, okay. all right? So, mm -hmm. but what does the risk go up to? And is that an absolute contraindication? And the, and the answer is it's not an absolute contraindication. It just increases your risk 
um, from about one in 200 to maybe uh, one to 2% from what I, from my understanding. So say it's 2%, that's one in 50. <clears throat> now, I don't think it's that high, but it's one in 50 times one in six or one in 300 as the result of getting a bad outcome. So um, no doctor's gonna wanna do it because most doctors don't want you to do a VBAC anyway. It's so much easier for them to schedule a C-section at 7.30 on a Tuesday than it is to have you go into labor at midnight on Christmas Eve. Um, they don't want you to do that. So there's a discouragement from that, both from their incentive, from the financial incentive, from the expedient incentive, from the hospital incentive, a lot of reasons to, to skew that counseling a little bit. Um, anything over six months, the data is such that it really doesn't make a difference. Though people will say that between six months and 18 months, there's an increased risk as well, but that risk is, is minuscule, if at all if you look at the data carefully. Uh, so that's one, that's one risk factor. Um, you know, some people say a two-layer closure is better than a one-layer closure. I would never exclude somebody from a VBAC because they had a one-layer closure. Uh, for years and years, a one-layer closure was the standard. Um, that was just what we did now. Generally, people are doing two-layer closures, but the risk again is, is not significantly increased from one layer, one layer closure, however, from your, at your at the surgery for your first C-section. However, again, practitioners who don't want you to have a VBAC will find a reason for you not to have a VBAC. And so they'll bring these sorts of things up. Right. right. And then, so, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say to the, to the practitioners who are listening to this podcast, um, besides managing, <laughs> your own fear um, and figuring out how to be really authentic. Are you, a are you a practitioner that can really support a woman without letting your fear come into play? So if some of the things that um, Dr. Stu just talked about in terms of the type of incision, the intervals, all of that makes you nervous, um, then you probably should be honest with that woman and, and tell her, I think that there are providers out there that would feel comfortable. I'm just not one of them. And I personally would ask a pregnant woman to maybe get a consult with you and, um, and to have you basically say what you just said, this, you know, the statistics increase, this is informed consent, but there, it's totally a reasonable choice for you to be able to get a trial of labor in order to um, see if you can have a vaginal delivery. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, and, and bliss, you know what? That's really that really it's really ties in with something we said about twins before too. If a doctor isn't comfortable with a second twin or even a first twin who's breech, they're not a twin expert, and they really shouldn't be taking care of twins at all. They should be referring people to 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 somebody who's comfortable with whatever position twin B is in, even if they, despite what twin A is doing. And the same thing here. If a person is nervous about VBAC, either because they just are nervous or maybe they had a bad experience once, that sort of thing, you shouldn't let, I mean, you can't, you can't let one bad experience change the facts about VBAC, which is that it's a very reasonable choice. So, but if they do for you, it's understandable, but then maybe you shouldn't be offering to take care of women who had a previous cesarean section. Maybe you should be referring them to your associate or somebody else in the community um, for that care. And why would you want to take care of somebody who's making you uncomfortable the whole time? Why, why, would, you, why would you want to do that? Well, money? Yeah. Again, you, know, I, I, you know, maybe they don't get paid a lot, in the, in the birth world from insurance yeah. or Medi-Cal or Medicaid, you know, that doesn't pay well enough to take on that sort of stress. So, yeah. you know, that's probably why they want to funnel them into the scheduled C-section rate, because it's not worth spending time dealing yeah. with it. the whole system. Won't go into that today. It's the system. It's the system that's broken. It's not most of the people. It's not your body. Yeah. Okay. It's not your body. And it's not most of the people have, have just been beaten up. Yeah. So um, when you see the, not you, but, but a listener, um, when you see the, the initials VBA2C or VBA3C, this is basically saying a vaginal birth after 
having had two previous cesareans or three previous cesareans on and on. So can you speak briefly to that? Because I actually have someone here in the Bay Area who's due in February, who's having a really hard time finding a provider, a practitioner, <laughs> um, uh, yes. because she's had two previous cesareans. So can, and I'm fine with it. I, I'm actually in conversation with seeing if I can help her. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? Multiple yeah, well, parents. briefly, ACOG supports VBAC after two C-sections um, mm -hmm. because there's, there is data on that. Um, and it is, I think, in their level B recommendation, if I remember correctly. Um, that, 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 so there's really no contraindication other than the ones we've already spoken about regarding having a VBAC after two C-sections. Your risk of rupture or dehiscence or whatever is just minimally greater, but it's not statistically significant. Yet it's again, it's used as a curmudgeon to get people. That's not the right word. Uh, well, as a hammer, whatever, to get you to do what they want you to do. It's used to pound you into one direction. And but it's not, it's not legitimately so. And VBAC after three and four C-sections probably carries more risk, but there's no data. There isn't enough of those that are happening where anybody has done a study to see what the risks significantly are. So people are just sort of extrapolating, well, if one is bad and two is worse, then three must be worse than two and four must be worse than three. But, and that makes sense to think like that, but it's not necessarily so. And I had one woman who said after she had her second C-section that she had a window when the doctor went in to do the second C-section and said that she should never have a vaginal delivery, even though he repaired the window. And the truth be told is that a window in one doesn't imply that you're gonna have a window in, in subsequent C-sections. And she went on to have a successful VBAC, despite what her physician, but she had it with us, not in the hospital yeah. setting. Yeah, so you feel comfortable um, supporting uh, VBAC after three or four cesareans? Well. Yeah, it really depends, again, on whether the, the one criteria that we always talk about, sort of nebulous one of, of the right parental mindset. Right. You want to talk to them and you want to give them informed consent. But if they have no choice, and specifically if they want that experience for their, for their personal um, growth, uh, how they feel about it, or they want a fifth baby or sixth baby or seventh baby, um, yeah, I would offer them that choice. You know, in, it, again, I say this in an ideal setting, it would be better to do that in a hospital setting where you have the emergency help. But again, first of all, you're not going to find a hospital setting that's going to do it. Secondly, emergency help probably isn't going to make a difference. And third, you're going to be treated so differently that your chance of success is less. So I know this is heresy to the people in my profession, but you're better off not being in a hospital. Yeah. Okay, great. If you can find a provider like, like Stu who would be willing a to do that. practitioner like Stu, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see, hard. you see how easy it rolls off the tongue? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I think we, uh, I think we need to get back to saying or a doctor like Stu or a midwife like Bliss or call yeah, us what we are. Yeah. You don't say, you don't say a, a lawyer is a legal practitioner. I mean, excuse me, a legal provider. You know, you would never say that a legal yeah. provider could be a, could be a, um, What's the person that assists a lawyer? I forgot what they're called. A paralegal? Paralegal, right. Huh? Yeah. yeah it could be a, a person that transcribes at the court, a court reporter. Yeah, it's just a general term. It's an umbrella term. I get it. I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying. Okay. Um, any, I'm going to give a couple of resources for VBACs. Um, anything else that you specifically would like to say about VBACs? Yes. One more thing. Doctors, again, who don't want to support your VBAC will often say, well, we need to do an ultrasound to look at your scar thickness. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Right. And they'll say, if it's less than this many millimeters or this 2.5 millimeters or whatever it is, then, then your risk of rupture is higher and stuff like that. There's data on both sides of that fence. Again, it's not necessarily a reason to deny someone the choice of a VBAC. It's a reason to skew your counseling if you don't want them to have that choice. It's also a reason to give them information so that they can make an informed decision 
But I do recommend an ultrasound uh, at 20 weeks or so to make sure that the placenta, as you said earlier, is not underlying the scar where you have this higher chance of placenta uh, accreta. Mm -hmm. Right. Got it. Okay. Um, so this woman asked for the top 10 resources for VBACs, and I don't have 10, but I'll tell you the ones that I do have. Um, and if you have any that you want to Why add would anybody in. want to know the top 10? I mean, is somebody going to look at number nine? <laughs> um, VBAC Facts is a really good um, uh, resource for statistics and information. Um, I can, as uh, Dr. Stewart suggested, it's a support group. Um, so going in and talking to other like-minded women who have had successful VBACs, um, there's a, just a lot of support. There's a place for you to be able to tell your story and to connect with other people. And I think a positive mindset and people that surround you that believe in what you're doing is the most important thing that you can do to prepare yourself. Um, the VBAC link, which we uh, did a podcast um, with those lovely ladies, it's a um, it's a podcast, but they also have a class that you can go through, which also will help you with information and for you and your partner, like a childbirth education class, but preparing for a vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, so that is a great resource. Um, the documentary, which uh, you talked about his other documentary, Heads Up, but our friend, Dr. Berlin, did a documentary called The Trial of Labor, which is a great documentary to um, again, learn more information, maybe share with your family, your partner, if there's anybody in your life who you want to be on your team and you want to give them information, that documentary is great. And doing it at home, which uh, Dr. Stu just was on recently talking about twins and breaches, I think mainly, um, but they're a great podcast resource that will have many birth stories about VBAC. So you can go on and look up their stories and listen to positive stories about people who have already had um, a successful VBAC or, or maybe some stories of, of things that didn't turn out right, but you can hear the entire story and how things went, which is what you need to do as you're making this decision. That was a really good list, Liz. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And I can't what, we can, what we can try to do if Emily's listening is she can find the links for those and put them in the podcast show notes. So that, that, would, that, be, would, be that would be great. But they're pretty obvious what you just said. I mean, people can, people can look them up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and as a, as a practitioner, um, I think, as I mentioned, you know, having faith in this woman's body is really important. Um, making sure that she gets support for the kind of trauma that she needs uh, to process what has happened, um, I think is really important. Um, chiropractic, I always recommend chiropractic for everyone um, at the end of pregnancy, if possible, if they have good providers available, but especially for preparing for, um, Again, by the way, preparing for a, um, a VBAC, I think it, you know, to give you the most possible chances of success, that could be something you could add in to, um, your resources for the women that you support. Couldn't, can't say much more than that. I think it's great. So uh, are you missing birth? Uh, <laughs> that's a complex question, what? but I'm going to birth in January in um, San Luis Obispo with a wonderful um, midwife, Tanya, out there. And we're talking about partnership. I think that's a great way to dip my toe back in um, is just to not be the primary caregiver. It's not that I'm afraid of going to birth. I love birth. I think being yeah, I at a birth, yeah, I think being at a birth will be awesome. I think I'm hesitant about um, being on call and being uh, available for people all the time. And that's not just the birth part. That's the you know questions and um, having your phone on and all those things you talked about in the beginning of the podcast. But eventually, yeah, I'm going to go back to work. So um, it's coming. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I have a little gap in my schedule right now and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. And then I've got, I'm very busy in uh, late February, early March and uh, most of March. And then I'm going to take some time off. And I don't really know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I may love the fact that I, that I turn my phone off at night and I can do that for a while. Or I may just start like itching everywhere badly and, and wanting to get back into birth. And I just, I don't know, but I'm curious because I, I, you're, I'm following sort of your experience. 
to see how, because I know how much you love birth, but you're right. You want to ease yourself back into it. And I think if I come back, I would rather not be necessarily primary. I mean, I'll have to be for some cases, depending yeah. on what state. Depends where I'm at and what state I'm in. But, yeah. but I, I would love to be able to be called and come when, I'm, when needed, that sort of thing, and not necessarily have to take primary responsibility. I don't want to do that. I'm, I don't really want to do the paperwork. You know, you people call it computer work, whatever it is, but the birth certificate paperwork, the, you know, the disability paperwork. I mean, I know I could hire somebody to do that for me. I've always done it myself, but I, I got I'm looking forward to a break from that. But I think like you, I probably would want to ease myself back in some way yeah. and then decide what I want to do afterwards. But I just thought, because I know how wonderful you are and I know I've watched you through all these years to grow into this person that you've become and this wise woman and birth needs you so at least they get you here but i'm just curious at how much that you feel um that you that you are itching to get back in or not and i really understand dipping your toe back in first and seeing how it goes and you know san Luis obispo is a great community it's a great area so that'll be really it'll be lucky for them too bad i can't convince you to come up there Or Santa yeah. Barbara. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, you just, you know, again, I, I don't want to go off into my tirade on California. No. It's just, no. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I get it. It's nuts. I you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to try really hard not to dehumanize anybody or, or uh, make war on the other, other side, but I can't help it sometimes because some of the things that are happening are just so dumb. And I, I just don't, I, I, the, my logical brain just cannot wrap my head around. It's been going on in obstetrics for my entire career. Yeah. Much I don't longer. understand why they do certain, why the medical model does certain things. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the simplest thing, like taking the baby to a warmer. Why do you do that? But they just do. And um, so the industrialized medical system is not something that I necessarily ever be able to go back to. Yeah. Um, finding my niche is what I want to do. I, I don't want to leave birth. I certainly want to teach. We'll see where it goes. Okay. Well, anyway, really great seeing you. Have a, I'm sorry, you cut, I cut you off. What'd you say? I, I was going to say, I think we did a great job talking about feedback today. I hope everybody enjoyed that. And it was also great to see you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And belated, this is belated, but at the time it's not. Merry Christmas. And Happy New Year. Well, I, I will probably see you before the Happy New Year. So we'll do Happy New Year next week. But uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Oh, you too, Stu. Love and, you. And blessings. Yes. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 